Good morning, church. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. I'm going to be reading from Mark 14, 53 uh, through 65. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made by, with hands. Yet even about this testimony, uh, they did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. We're so glad that you're all here with us uh, this morning. And as Katie mentioned, we're kind of entering the season of Advent. And um, it's, it is ironic because uh, for those of you guys who call the King's Church home, you know that we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark as well. And so we kind of get this little double up. Uh, action of we're kind of doing like Good Friday and Easter and then also Christmas at the same time. So uh, it's, it's the time is ironic. I realize that. Um, but here's, here's kind of an opportunity even to kind of comment on that irony. Uh, this is all about Jesus, the whole Bible, right? So like from beginning to end, from the front to start, um, and, and our church, it's really an opportunity for us to remember that this is all about his story, and what, um, what we're learning about the gospel in, in the midst of all of that. So as we wrap up this series in Mark, we've got three weeks left. Um, I, I want you to just be aware of these awesome bookends that we get to experience together of as we go into Christmas and the birth of Christ, and then also as we wrap up our series in Mark. And I hope that opportunity is not lost in you. So this morning, Jesse just read a, a portion of it. We're going to actually be covering some ground this morning, uh, 1453 to 1520, but I, I want to point you to this idea of Jesus and his posture of suffering. Jesus and his posture of suffering. And Isaiah 53, as you know, in the Old Testament, maybe you, you've heard that chapter before, or you've read it before, it speaks to this idea of Jesus being the suffering servant. He's a suffering servant for us on our behalf. And, and here's the reality. No one likes to suffer, right? That's not fun for anybody. In fact, I, I feel like suffering is even distinct from the idea of just pain or a hard experience because suffering feels ongoing. Suffering feels cruel in some ways. And if you go on Netflix, you can kind of catch 
documentaries right away about like the suffering of animals, and some of you became vegan because of that, or, or the suffering of you know, this group in this country specifically. Suffering is, is hard to stomach because it really speaks to our understanding of the Imago Dei. Even if we wouldn't uh, ourselves say it ourselves that way, we don't like it when people suffer. It, it feels uncomfortable. It feels uh, hard to even think that people are suffering in the world right now as we sit here in this comfortable room together. And there's, there's layers to this. There's, there's the animals we talked about. There's the quality of impoverished people all over the world. There's uh, the suffering of children and, and older people, uh, the suffering of those who are innocent, uh, who are helpless in some ways. And so I, I want to I warn you that this passage dives into the deep end of Christ's suffering for us. And he suffers for a purpose. He suffers for a reason. And it's important to remember, though, that he did suffer. Jesus suffered greatly. And I would say that Christ's suffering and the story of leading up to the cross uh, and the crucifixion is perhaps one of the most well-known, well-documented cases of suffering in history. And, And what makes it that much harder to stomach is that he was completely innocent of any wrongdoing. So this morning, I, I want to encourage you to remember the duality of Christ in this sermon, in this passage, that he was God, he was powerful, but yet the, human, the humanness of him as well, he was 100% God, 100% human, this is the suffering that we see on display uh, for, for you and I. And so why would he do this? Why would he allow himself to suffer and be the victim of injustice over and over again in this passage? So here's our, our big idea this morning. Uh, something I just want to point you to as we consider this passage. Out of love for us and obedience to the Father, Jesus suffered on our behalf. Out of love for us and out of obedience to the Father, Jesus suffered on our behalf. We're beginning in verse 53, and just catching up, Jesus is betrayed by Judas in the garden of Gethsemane. Uh, All his guys show up. They're ready for a fight. It doesn't really go that great. Uh, Someone loses an ear. There's a a lot going on kind of uh, leading up to this passage. He's been arrested and taken to Caiaphas for for trial, and that's kind of where we find him and how his suffering in the story starts. So point number one is, is simply this. Jesus suffers, first of all, a mock trial. Jesus suffers a mock trial. We read about it in verse 53. Let me read this to you again in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. So here we start to see some organization of these religious leaders we've talked about. If you've been studying Mark with us the past year, you know that there's a different group of folks kind of coming together for the first time right now. We have the high priests and the the Pharisees. We have scribes. We've talked about these guys in in multiple uh, sermons throughout the year. But here we have, for the first time, a gathering of all of them together. And this group together is called the Sanhedrin. And it's about 70 guys it's about 70 guys, and it's an intimidating crowd. They are experts in their field. They're kind of these lawyer, theologian-type folks who all sit there, and they're all pointing fingers at Jesus. And they are the highest ruling court of Jews at the time. So remember, that's important. These are not the Romans that are about to put Jesus on trial. These are the Jews. This is the Sanhedrin 
the religious leaders of Israel. And so that's happening inside. Meanwhile, Peter has kind of started to get his uh, kind of moxie back up, his, his courage back up. And so he starts to kind of like follow the crowd into, they would have these, these courts outside of their homes and there was a fireplace there, a fire pit of some sort, and he was warming himself by the fire. And so these two scenes kind of unfolding at the same time. Verse 55 says this, Where's that? Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about their testimony did they not agree. This is why... Uh, this point and this phrase trial gets the quotations because it's not real, right? It's, it's, it's not actual justice. They have these witnesses lined up, but they've paid them all. They've kind of given them their story and say, okay, you say this, and then afterward, no, no, hold on, wait a minute. You say, that person has to say this thing first, and, and they kind of get this group in the same room, and it's the circus. One dude's supposed to be the judge, and the next thing you know, he's acting like the prosecutor. It's like no one knows what they're doing. And these guys are smart, intelligent, organized people, but it's a mockery. It's, it's a farce, right? Like Jesus is there. He's supposed to be, be judged by his kind of peers. And the writer Mark actually wants us to know that Jesus should have been let go at this point. Because according to Jewish law, if one person gives a testimony that doesn't line up with another person, uh, the Jewish law was actually very black and white when it came to that. It's like, all right, this mistrial, just throw it out. And yet this has happening over and over again in this passage. I, I want to point out here, and I want to I invite you into kind of an empathetic posture, because I realize that some of you in this room have felt judged before, and have felt judged unjustly. Maybe you're even in a season right now where you feel like people see you and don't see you the way that is, is accurate and is reality. Um, and I would affirm... This is a true kind of suffering. This is a suffering that is, is hard to uh, understand and to, to really maybe empathize with, but when people who are in power, people with influence, people with uh, kind of all the cards in their hands, whether it's legal or not, they have the ability to make you pay in some way, to make you accept fault, to ruin your reputation. And so I want to encourage you that if you feel that way this morning, Jesus knows how you feel. He can sympathize with that feeling of being judged unjustly. And he endures this mock trial when the stakes are at its highest. If this doesn't go well for him and he, he realizes it's not going to, he'll be killed because they want him gone. They're willing to do whatever it takes. Verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? You see, uh, if you've been through, with us through Mark, you remember this dynamic at play all throughout the gospel. And the theolog theologians will call this the messianic secret. Maybe you've heard that phrase before, and it simply has to do with the timing that Jesus has chosen to reveal to, to all people a revelation that he is God. And 
And this secret is something that he really wanted to have some control over how this was let out over time. And so you go back a few chapters uh, towards the beginning of Mark, you realize he does these miracles. People will be like, this guy's amazing. It, are, you, are you the Messiah? And he's like, shh, don't tell anybody. It's not time yet. It's a secret. It's a mess, the Messianic secret. And so we, we see this kind of over and over and over again. And Peter um, most notably speaks up about Jesus being the Christ. And he says, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. That's what we all see. That's what we all know. And Jesus, even to Peter, he's like, hey, the time hasn't come yet. Keep it to yourself. But now he's on trial here in Mark 14, and he's asked a direct question by the high priest. Are you the Christ? Are you the son of God? In verse 62, he says this, and Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. For years, he is quiet on this back and forth Q&A. But here at the end, he knows what's ahead and he confirms it. He says, I am the Messiah. I am the savior. And he actually quotes Psalm 110, and Daniel 7 here, and he reminds them, hey, uh, look, whatever happens this weekend, this is not the last time you'll see me. In fact, I'll, I'll be back. That's all they needed. Verse 63, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? By the way, I think sometimes we read these things in the Bible, you know how hard it would be to like, tear your clothes, right? <laughs> he must have been pretty upset. He tears his garments. It'd be awkward if he took a while, but and, and said, "What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision?" And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, "Prophesy!" And the guards received him with blows. This is the green light. This is all they needed. They got Jesus, his own words, against him. He's claimed for himself that position at the right hand of God. He says, I am, I, I am who you say I am. And in a blind rage, they declare his death sentence. They spit on him. They do something to obscure his vision. They, maybe they throw a bag over his head, and they start to, to beat him and hit him. And the charge is blasphemy. Jesus claims to be the son of Yahweh. And for Sanhedrin, they reject this with every fiber of their being. And I know it's uncomfortable, but before we move on, like, I, I want to talk about, I mentioned the tearing of the garments. I, I, I mentioned kind of like, they start to spit on him. Like, have we ever spat on someone before? Probably not, right? Like, the, have you ever been so angry that you're foaming in the mouth and you hit somebody and you're, it's like, why are they so angry? Why are they so full of rage? And before we kind of move on, I think we do this with even Judas and his storyline too. We tend to distance ourselves a little bit from that. It's like, that's a little bit weird. Why was he so bent on that? I want to remind you that we have some things in common with this corrupt group. Because you and I, spiritually, we mock Jesus every time we lean into our rebellion and sin. That's what we're ultimately doing. While our mouth may not yell out blasphemer, our, our actions, our, our heart does the speaking for us. And so whenever we give in and whenever we do what we want to, and whenever we follow our own plans, we are effectively putting ourselves in the place of God and saying, I, I reject you, God. I reject you, Christ. I don't need you. And this is at the heart 
of the, the, the Sanhedrin and their, their rage. Listen, for generations, historically, they were the standard of right and wrong. For generations, they were the ones who provided uh, moral direction, and they were the final arbiters of the law. For them, not only was Jesus stepping on their toes, they hated the fact that he was around. Like, why do we need this guy? Uh, it makes a simple idea, example, but imagine you're an expert in your field of work. Maybe, it's, you know, maybe you actually are. Maybe it's a stretch for you. I don't know where you're at, okay? But imagine in your workplace, your organization, you are hired for a very specific task. You get very good at this task. And you take a lot of pride in your work. And, and over time, people give you accolades and they start to rely on you at work for this specific thing that you do alone at work. And then the powers that be, the guys that are in charge, the organizations, whoever, they actually decide to hire somebody else who does your job better than you. And they're a little bit more efficient and they're inspiring and they teach amazing things, and they, they're in the break room, like, spinning these stories, and it's like, you start to feel a little bitter, right? It's like, why is this guy here? This was already covered. And I'm, I'm just sharing this as a way for us to kind of almost get ourselves to understand the thinking of the Jewish leadership a little bit. They had this part covered. Why are you here, Jesus? And it's, so, it's interesting how fast a great thing, because for the organization that's in this kind of hypothetical work situation, that's a great thing. You want to have the best people for the job. And so for, for the Jews and for the nation of Israel, Jesus should have been awesome for this, this nation. But it turns this group who is so used to having the last say, and it turns them towards bitterness and rage. They want to be in charge. They want to have the say. And this is where I think you and I can relate, because how quickly can our rejection of Christ and what he wants into our life turn to resentfulness, right? Like how fast can resentfulness turn to rage? This is the sinfulness of the Sanhedrin on display, but it's a cycle that we repeat in our sin as well. And so Jesus suffers a mock trial. He's declared guilty for saying he's the son of God, he's called a liar, and he's rejected by the Sanhedrin. And so, church, friends, don't make the same mistake. Number two, Jesus suffers another way. Number two, Jesus suffers a close friend's denial. Look at verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, remember, he's at the same kind of house, area, estate that Jesus is in a different room on. One of the servant girls and the high priest of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out in the gateway, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Uh, scholars think that this is because uh, when he spoke, he had a, the accent of a Galilean. It was obvious where he was from. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, in his funny accent, I don't know this man you're speaking of. And immediately, the rooster crowed. So here we see a, a, a story that maybe many of you have read before, have studied before. But keep in mind, uh, three to four hours ago, Jesus literally predicts this would happen. We, we, we saw this earlier. Peter, look, I know you have the best of intentions, but keep in mind, look, 
Even you, my close friend, are going to deny me. You're going to leave me, reject me in my time of need. And here he is. He's sitting at the fire. And not to prolong this, but if you look back at actually uh, 14, um, go back to 14 verse 43. I'm sorry, verse 53, 54. 14, 54. Peter followed him at a distance, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. This is just kind of a side note. I just Sometimes you read things in the Bible, and you're like, that's just interesting that Peter, in his time of doubt, in time of pain and wondering what happened to his friend, he runs to self-comfort, right? Like he's warming himself by the fire. He's just, he's trying to make sense of the world he's in. And this is true, I think, of us as well. And he's sitting there, and the servant girl confronts him. Now, it's a servant girl. I don't say that to be chauvinistic. At the time, a servant girl, societally, would have been extremely low on the radar. Like, like literally, she's a female child. She has zero influence or authority over him at all. Peter could have literally spilled his guts and said, I love Jesus, and this is my deepest, darkest sin, and, and don't tell anybody, and she tells somebody, this servant girl would have had no recourse whatsoever to be able to say, well, he said this and that, and she's a nobody societally. And so I, my point is this. He's not confronted by a Roman guard or somebody with status or authority. Peter is freaked out. He's totally nervous about being there. He responds this way. She's a doorkeeper. She's a servant. And she comes up and she says, hey, aren't you one of the guys with Jesus? And he's like, nope, got it, got it wrong. And then she asks again. He doubles down. Yeah, I remember you too. Peter says, you've got the wrong guy. And a third time, another person says the same thing. Hey, I recognize you from your accent. You're a Galilean. You know Jesus. You're one of the disciples. And in verse 71, it says that Peter basically begins to swear not cursing swear, maybe, maybe he did, but more of like, I promise on the lives of my kids, I, I kind of swearing, right? I swear to God, kind of swearing. Send me to hell if I'm lying to you, kind of swearing. Peter's sin and denial is painfully clear. He disassociates himself with Jesus. And I look at the work that Peter does to disentangle his reputation from Christ. And in one way, what's so sad about the story is this could have been an amazing, beautiful story. Peter was known as a man who had been with Christ. Imagine having that reputation. It's one that I'm sure we'd all like to have. And that's why this next verse is so painful and maybe even relatable in verse 72. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. How do we know that Peter broke down and wept? Uh, you'll recall that Mark was written, Gospel of Mark was written by Mark, but it was narrated by Peter. And Peter shares this intimate, sad detail of how he responds. It's a very private moment. Peter's alone. At this point, this is his greatest failure probably ever. I don't know what you think about the Bible, but I can tell you this. The Bible does not idolize its heroes. The Bible is really authentic and genuine about who the story is, is about and who they are. It's extremely honest about the highs and lows. Um, you recall in the Old Testament, like Abraham doubted God's goodness, and so he kind of took things in his own hands. 
Noah was a drunk. Moses had a had an anger problem. King David is basically the, the gold standard of leadership and kind of the, the golden time of, of, of Israel. And the Bible goes out of its way over and over again to share about his adultery and murdering. The Bible is very clear that the only hero worth worshiping is Jesus. And the apostle Paul, Peter at the time, this is being written by the way, Peter is like a hero in the church. He's basically started the church in Acts in Jerusalem. He's leader of the church, and the Bible uses Peter's example, the story, to encourage us that even though he fails in this moment, he eventually repents, and Jesus goes out of his way in this beautiful conversation on the beach. In fact, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn there to John 21 uh, for a second, and you'll see at the end of 21, kind of a continuation of what happens here. John 21, verses 1 through 19, two books over. And I'm not sure when we'll get the opportunity again to see the story arc at its fullness. So let's, let's take some time this morning as we have the opportunity. John 21, it basically tells the same story of Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. And unlike Mark, who's known for his brevity, um, John and Luke especially, and Matthew, these guys, we see uh, lots more stories. And I would encourage you, if you've not read the other Gospels, to read the Gospels uh, throughout the New Testament. And we see that Jesus is resurrected, and John gives this amazing follow-up of, of really kind of what happens to Peter's failure. So let's, let's read this together. Uh, John 21, verse 1. After this, after Jesus was resurrected, after he starts to appear to people, uh, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to him, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to him, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. That was John, by the way. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer, gar- he put on his outer garment, uh, for he stripped off the work and threw himself in the sea. I also thought it was funny that Peter puts on clothes to jump in the water. Um, the other disciple came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but 100, y- 100 yards off. When they got out of the land, they saw charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to him, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net uh, ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Here's the interaction I want you guys to really look at. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, tend my sheep. He said to him for the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. 
you know that I truly love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And after this, he said this to him, follow me. This is, a, this is an amazing story for many ways, but uh, really simply, uh, how many times does Peter deny Christ? Three times. How many times is Peter, how many times is Peter asked by Jesus about his love for him? Three times. And what's happening in John 21 is that Jesus is not rubbing Peter's face in his failure. He's not being vindictive or petty. That's not what's happening here. He's taking a moment with one of his closest friends in the world and saying, Peter, you may think that you're a failure, but I know who you are, and I know how you will be used to shepherd the church. And the love you feel for me, that love that I asked you about over and over again, that love you feel for me will be redirected into your love for the people. So shepherd my flock, feed my sheep. I want you to lead the church, Peter. And Jesus brings him back into wholeness and reinstates Peter to leadership. This all happens after Jesus rises from the grave. But in this moment, in Mark 14 and 15, if you want to turn back there, Jesus suffers this denial from a friend. But understand, church, because, because of your sin and my sin, we wrong Christ every day in the same way. We deny him the same way. But listen, you do not have to be the person you are today, tomorrow. You can be a different person. And Jesus can change you. No matter what you've done, no matter how far, no matter how far you've, you've fallen, even if you've denied him multiple times, if you seek his forgiveness, he will forgive you with, from all iniquity. And you can be different. And this is why he came to earth to start with. And so if you've made mistakes We've all made mistakes. We're all sinful like Peter. We can also share in this hope. Number three, last, last uh, couple of points here. Jesus suffers an unjust sentence. Look at chapter 15 of Mark, verses one through five. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and with the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus, Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. The Sanhedrin has this problem because while they are the highest ruling group of Jews in Israel, they have no authority to actually prosecute and to carry out a sentence. And so they're now in a situation where they have to actually lay their charges before a, a Roman representative who actually has the authority to enact these charges. And so Pontius Pilate's the guy. He has the power. He's the, the governor of the region. And the Jews are trying to sell this to Pilate like Jesus is kind of like this threat to Caesar in some way. And there's this tension that's happening between the Jews and the Romans, and there's insurrections happening all the time. And so while everyone knew Jesus had zero interest in this kind of political angle uh, that the Sanhedrin is running with, Pilate asks him, hey, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, you've said it yourself. Now, Pilate is a politician, and he's standing there, and he's realizing uh, 
what the Sanhedrin is saying doesn't align with the posture and the words of what Jesus is doing and saying. And he's amazed by the whole thing. Because typically, when innocent people are faced with death, they speak up, right? I mentioned this at the start, but this goes back to Isaiah, this picture of the suffering, suffering servant who is silent before his accusers, like a, like a lamb before the slaughter. And Jesus says nothing, because this is all going to plan, by the way. Verse 6. Now, at the feast, he used, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the kingdom of the Jews? For he perceives that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. You see uh, Pilate's mindset as a politician to start to play out here a little bit. Because apparently Pilate had, had some goodwill with Jews because he had a tradition where he would release one prisoner during Passover. It was, it was kind of like how a governor would use his power to pardon people on death row. And Pilate is, is like, hey, this actually works out great. This is a win-win because I kind of feel like Jesus is not guilty of this stuff. And maybe the crowd has had their fill. They beat him up a bit. His reputation is ruined. Maybe they'll do what's right now and say, yeah, it's fine. You can release Jesus now. Now, in the narrative, I, I, I wonder, is, is Pilate sympathetic to Christ? And I can almost imagine him kind of giving Jesus a wink, right? It's like, hey, I'll take care of this for you. I have a solution. Well, not so fast, Pilate, because you've underestimated this group a bit. Verse 11. Uh, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. Uh, Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? So they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Barnabas, Barabbas uh, rather, was a, a zealot. He was an actual insurrectionist. Uh, he was a murderer. In other words, from Rome's standard, he was the guy who was absolutely a threat to the empire. This is a guy who absolutely belonged in jail, and Pilate overplays his hand a bit here. Barabbas should have been a slam dunk, right, to trade out. A dangerous terrorist versus Jesus the rabbi, this guy who goes around healing people, right? But we see the chief priests go into crowd control mode, and the crowd flips logic on its head. Jesus suffers an unjust sentence. It's so unjust and so backwards. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, Pilate uh, will say this in Matthew 27, 24. Pilate saw that he had gained nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. See to it. See to the sentencing yourself. And as a result of this mock trial, the abandonment of friends, this unjust death to be crucified, it says that Jesus, in verse 15, was scourged. Whenever I revisit the torture and the death of Jesus, usually around Good Friday, like we all do, um, there's always parts of the story that are especially hard. And for me, that verse has a lot of hard things in it, right? The, the scourging of Jesus, it, it's kind of there at the top. I was at a little coffee shop this uh, past week and kind of just writing out this part of my sermon and just thinking through this. And I had to kind of stand up and take some breaks because I was just thinking about what Jesus went through physically at this time, the story. Um, the physical pain and damage of a scourge often kill people on its own. 
And it was so brutal that they actually wouldn't allow women to experience it. And the criminal was tied to a post, and they were brutally and expertly whipped by a Roman soldier, this guy who just does this all the time. And this whip, as you probably remember from um, time studying this before, was a piece of braided leather, and usually had rocks or glass or stones kind of braided into the leather. And the Bible doesn't directly talk about how many times Jesus was hit, um, but in Deuteronomy 25.3, it states that criminals, according to Jewish law, were supposed to be hit 40 times, 40 lashes. And in order to possibly accidentally break this command, the Jews would give the criminal 39 lashes, just to be safe. But again, Jesus was scourged by the Romans, and there's no reason to think that the Romans would hold back. So we don't know. We don't know how many times he was beaten. But it could have been, it was, it was, it was awful. And I just want to remind us that even in that small verse, Jesus suffered this pain for us. Let's look at this last point together. Jesus finally, he suffers humiliation. Jesus suffers humiliation. Verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes back on him. And they led him out to crucify him. It wasn't enough for him to suffer physically. Jesus suffers on emotional and mental levels as well. Uh, some of you, if I were to kind of like ask the crowd, like uh, have a higher pain tolerance than other people, right? Like, some, like those of you who have gone through childbirth, you women, I'm, that's amazing. That's crazy, right? There's, there's levels to experiencing pain and suffering. Some of you though, some of us are a little bit more sensitive when it comes to just like psychologically or, or mental humiliation. And, and there's all kinds of ways that we suffer in these ways. And again, Jesus experiences it all. Like things have completely gone off the rails here. It seems like the crowd and the Sanhedrin have won. Verse 16 says that a whole battalion has come to accompany Jesus to be crucified. By the way, a battalion is about 600 soldiers. So that's a lot of guys, right? Like a lot of guys, it seems like overkill a bit. And Mark goes into some detail. These Romans humiliate Jesus. They put on a sarcastic kind of like mock worship service. They give him a purple cloak. They give him that crown of thorns on his head. And then they take turns saluting him and hitting him and spitting on him. And what's ironic is that for all the play acting and mockery, Jesus, Jesus actually deserved their worship. He was actually God in the flesh. And if he wanted to, if he chose to, he could have ended all their lives in a second. But that wasn't the plan. He endured humiliation and injustice for us all. And so I just want to... I want to end with this encouragement to you this morning. In the midst of this heavy passage, I want you to remember, church, that God's plans ultimately always succeed. The early church, suffocating under the hand of persecution, living in fear, understood this, the suffering, and and how God's plan cannot be stopped. It will always succeed. And when troubling times come, I want us to remember that God is still in control. I think about the early church accounts and expect, uh, and how they expected the suffering and hostility that would come their way. And how can we, as followers of Christ, expect to avoid it? How can we? Sometimes we think it's not for us, but our king suffered, 
and so will we. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But through it all, Jesus remained quiet and confident. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He did not buckle. He did not panic. And though the religious leaders kind of lost their minds that day, and Pilate had lost control, Jesus lost neither. And as the religious leaders lost their composure, Jesus remained calm and focused on the task ahead. So I just want to point you again to our big idea this morning. Out of love for us and obedience to the Father, Jesus suffered on our behalf. But we must also remember that Jesus suffered at our hands. This question sometimes comes up through historians and theologians, like who's responsible ultimately for the death of Christ? Was it, you know, some will say it was the Jewish uh, Sanhedrin. Some will lay the, the blame at the Romans' feet. But the obvious fact is that Jesus suffered at the hands of evil people. And what's not so obvious is that we fall under that umbrella of evil people as well. And it might sound harsh to remember, but it was our sin that put him there. Jesus loved us, and he went through all of this because of our sin. And that's not fun to think about. It's nothing to say that sinful people, the one day will die, uh, we, we get exactly what's coming to us. We chose sin. We brought death into the world. But the greatest injustice is that the God of the universe, who never did anything wrong at all, put on flesh and came to the earth and went through all this for us. And he laid down his authority without panic or freaking out. And in the process, he defeated the great enemy. God's plans will always succeed. And so as we bow our heads together and pray, let's, let's do that right now. Let's remember this suffering that Jesus went through for us on our behalf out of love for us and obedience to the Father. God, we're, we're grateful for this reminder here uh, in this holiday season to, to remember, Lord, the hope that we have because of your Son. Um, what a good God we serve to send his Son on our behalf so we didn't have to die, so we didn't have to suffer eternal damnation and pain and suffering, Lord. You did it for us. And Lord, I pray that that would sober us this morning, that that would remind us, Lord, of how good you are, and it would, it would fill our hearts with worship and thankfulness for how you love and care for us this morning. So God, we're grateful for this reminder, we're grateful for this telling of Mark, and, and as as, as we even continue next week to the crucifixion, to, to Easter Sunday, Lord, that we would remember the hope we have because we know the end of the story. We pray these things in your name. Amen.